0: Welcome to the Tone Stone Podcast. I'm Garrett Ryan, and my guest today is Nico Roymans, Professor of European Archaeology at the Free University of Amsterdam. Professor Roymans, welcome to the program. Okay. Uh, so, I want to talk today um, about your specialty about the archaeology of the Roman Netherlands and about the Romans in Northwestern Europe more generally. So, ancient texts describe a number of Germanic tribes, such such as the Batavi and Frisii, that live in the territory of what's now the Netherlands uh, before and during the period of the Roman conquest. How much do we know about these tribes, both from textual evidence and from archaeology?
1: Yeah, you're mentioning two different tribes the Frisii and the the Mm -hmm. Batavi. The Frisii are situated outside the Roman Empire. Uh, Apart from the very early part of the imperial period, they were for a short time part of the empire. And the Batavi are of course included, incorporated into the Roman Empire. And the sets of evidence we have is uh, very specific for these two groups. We can distinguish between archaeological evidence on one hand, and within the archaeological evidence we can um, Speak of several subcategories and, of course, the written uh, evidence. And for the Frisi, uh, we have, uh, well, very little archaeological or historical uh, uh, documentation. Uh, But rich archaeological evidence, uh, especially the core area of the Frisian uh, region, that was the uh, Holocene coastal area of the north of the Netherlands, and that was densely populated. And a lot of settlements were situated here on artificial mounds, the so-called terp settlements. Mm -hmm. And several of them have been excavated, and so we know what kind of houses there were and the, uh, uh, the development of the settlement through the uh, centuries. So we are quite well informed about the Frisian uh, region from an archaeological point of view. For the Batavian region, it's we have much more evidence. We have not only important settlement evidence and evidence about Uh, cold places and uh, cemeteries of of simple rural settlements and and semi-urban settlements. But um, we also have a rich uh, written documentation. On the one hand, that is uh, Tacitus' rich account Mm -hmm. of the Batavian revolt of uh, 68, 69 uh, AD. Uh, but we also have a lot of epigraphical documentation. We know, for example, um, of over um, sixty Batavian individuals who uh, mention their or Batavian their Batavian origin, and they are spread all over the Roman Empire because they were functioning as soldiers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we, apart from that, we also were so lucky for the Batavians that they um, had uh, left. Um, uh, traces in Vindolanda in, uh, mm-hmm. in in Britain the Vindolanda writing tablets uh, most of the evidence uh, of these writing tablets relates to a period when a Batavian cohort was situated there so uh, a lot of uh, evidence different kinds of evidence and it is of course a challenge to combine these different sets of evidence and I, th- I think we can say that the Batavian area is one of the best documented regions uh, of the Roman Empire. Uh, So we are very lucky about that. Hmm.
0: That's fascinating. Often the assumption is that the frontiers are less well documented, when of course it's the opposite in many cases, thanks to the soldiers. Um, So during his conquest of Gaul, uh, Caesar led the first Roman army into what is now the Netherlands, where he claimed to have destroyed two migrating tribes. You tell us about the recently discovered evidence for his massacre of these tribes?
1: Yeah, that's um, a long story. We are in the Netherlands in the uh, Holocene river delta of the rivers Maas uh, and Rhine. And there is a lot of dredging going on for decades already. And one byproduct of these dredging operations are archaeological finds that were uh, brought up uh, by dredging uh, boats and uh, there is often rich archaeological material and there is one specific spot in the Dutch river area and that's near the place Kessel in the center of the Dutch river delta near the ancient confluence of the Maas River and the, the Rhine River where a lot of military equipment uh, was um, uh, discovered in the course of several decades. And uh, that was weaponry, uh, swords, spearheads, fragments of helmets, uh, ornaments. And uh, initially I interpreted that material as uh, evidence for a cold place related to uh, a river uh, junction. But then it turned out more and more that there was a rich uh, amount of evidence of human remains uh, that uh, were brought up and these human remains could not be dated initially because they are isolated finds. But we had a lot of uh, radiocarbon dates uh, of these uh, human bones and it turned out that there is a clear peak in the mid first century BC. And um, then it's interesting to observe that a lot of the military equipment we have here from that same site is also datable to the mid first century B.C. And uh, so it, and the, the human remains uh, were uh, uh, evidence from children, women and males. So it was a very mixed population, but there are clear cases of uh, violence, traces of violence on these uh, human bones. And then <coughs> we uh, well, developed the thesis that we are dealing here with a battle related uh, fine complex. And uh, then we had, of course, the, the historical documentation, because then it turned out that Caesar is describing in great detail a battle um, of two, um, against two Germanic groups, the Tengtiri and Usipetus in 55 BC, who asked permission uh, to enter uh, the uh, the Gallic area and settle in northern Gaul. Caesar refused that and he decided to march against these two Germanic tribes. And uh, he uh, had the battle or in fact it was not a battle, it was a massacre when you, you read the evidence. Uh, Mm -hmm. And uh, he destroyed these two groups and the final uh, battle took place at the confluence of the rivers Maas and uh, Rhine. And that's exactly the place where we find these uh, human bones in great numbers and these uh, military material. And so that Uh, was the basis for the hypothesis that we were dealing here with the um, remains of the battle described by Caesar. Of course, we can never pinpoint and date the archaeological material to exactly that date, 55 BC, but it is quite uh, acceptable that uh, when you have so much material related to um, a, a battle, around the mid first century BC and then at that place when such a battle is described here that you make that uh, conclusion. So that's in a few words, the the (laughs) core of the story of these two tribes. Uh, And it was uh, really a massacre because uh, Caesar, uh, of course, he is exaggerating that he is describing Uh, that uh, the complete population, uh, uh, males, women, children, here were massacred. And um, we also know that these groups were not uh, local in the area. They were coming from the other side of the Rhine, so they were immigrant uh, Mm -hmm. tribes. And uh, that's important because we also were able to carry out um, um, isotopic research with these human remains. And it turned out that these individuals where we had the entire um, tooth uh, Mm -hmm. material, that they turned out to be uh, people of non-local origin and that also confirms that we were dealing here with. People who were coming from another area, and that's also a confirmation of the story of Caesar that uh, these were immigrant tribes.
0: Hmm. Yeah, it feels like an excellent coincidence of text and archaeology. You know, of course you say we can never be absolutely sure, but it feels hard to think of it as anything else but that massacre. Well, that's fascinating. Uh, to move forward in time a little bit, Um, So, the southern half of the modern Netherlands became part of the empire, uh, south of the Rhine, and remained Roman for centuries. What does the archaeological evidence tell us about the the Romanization, use an old-fashioned word, um, of the region's inhabitants?
1: Yeah. Yeah, Romanization, we know that Romanization is not a uniform process that develops Mm -hmm. in every part of the Roman Empire in the same way. Uh, there is a lot of regional variation and uh, from that point of view we can uh, say that the areas of the uh, southern netherlands had a very specific uh, romanization trajectory Um, when you would have traveled in the countryside of the batavian region You would have seen there a lot of small rural settlements with traditional uh, buyer houses, which were already there in the uh, pre-Roman Iron Age, Um, they were practising mixed uh, agricultural mixed farming uh, with an emphasis on uh, animal husbandry, especially cattle uh, breeding. And so from a general point of view, you could The first impression would be that these were people who were um, not so very much uh, Romanized. Um, Normally you think of rich countryside, uh, Roman villas everywhere and monuments, local monuments and so, but that's not the case here. Uh, But uh, it is a pitfall because when you look at the material evidence um, from these rural settlements, there is a lot of... Uh, military equipment, uh, fragments of Roman military equipment that was uh, well uh, preserved at the, in these rural farmsteads. Um, we find evidence of um, writing wooden writing tablets, um, all kinds of elements that uh, indicate um, a higher level of Romanization, but the romanization that followed, the uh, trajectory of the Roman army and that is related to a uh, farming population uh, which had fairly traditional settlements but who were exploited by the Roman uh, authorities in a very intensive way in a sense that they were uh, well exploited as a kind of breeding ground for auxiliary soldiers on a, a very intense scale. And we have written evidence for that, that especially the Batavians, but also the Tungri uh, and the Kalanavates, they were providing uh, auxiliary cohorts and the Tungri and the the, the Batavians also um, uh, cavalry uh, units. So uh, that, that, that military recruitment was so intensive that we have the idea that almost every Batavian settlement, for example, must have had one or two sons in the Roman army. And uh, that also uh, may may explain that uh, we have several epigraphic uh, evidence for two brothers uh, serving in the Roman army. Uh, So that military recruitment was triggering a very specific Romanization trajectory. I think these uh, people here in the frontier zone, these Batavi, had a better knowledge of the Gallic, of the uh, Latin, sorry, the Latin language, than people more to the south in 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 Gaul. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. But that is all related to uh, the close uh, association with the Roman army. Mm-hmm.
0: Right, he said it's important to contrast the military-driven romanization with, say, southern Gaul, where you see, right, those grand monuments and the villas. So you mentioned earlier um, the famous Revolt of the Batavi in 68-69, uh, led by a arist- local aristocrat uh, Gaius Julius Civilis. Um, so what do we know about, thanks to Tacitus, the causes and nature of the Revolt of Civilis, which becomes become so important later to Dutch national identity?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um... It's, of course, well known that um, there is a long history uh, in Dutch national uh, history of well um, studying the Batavian revolt as an example of a, a, a national revolt against mm-hmm. the, uh, the, uh, the, the Habsburg Empire in the 16th century. It was an analogy, it was very popular. Um, But we now realize more and more that there are several dimensions interacting in the period of the Batavian Revolt. There are elements that indeed indicate that it was a kind of native revolt, but it was Mm. much more complicated. Uh, It was also important to observe that that uh, revolt took place at the moment uh, when there was um, uh, a civil war going on uh, because mm-hmm. of the death of Nero in 68. So there was uh, uh, different uh, parties were um, uh, fighting against each other. And in this constellation, the Batavians uh, well, were forced to provide extra troops to uh, an amount that it was difficult to realize that and and the uh, tacitus clearly uh, specifies that the extreme burden of extra troop supplies uh, was very heavy and almost unacceptable for the batavians so that was also a factor that was relevant because these extreme troop uh, um, uh, recruitments were also organized in an official treaty uh, between the batavians and the um, and rome and antiqua societas and uh, so what was happening here that they were so intensely um, uh, taxed uh, for uh, for military supplies auxiliary supplies that was too much for them and then Interesting also is that there may be also a very um, uh, individual element uh, here in play, and that is uh, Civilis' close relationship with Vespasian, which he um, uh, met uh, during their stay in, in uh, these uh, both persons in Britain. Mm-hmm. And um, we know that Vespasian was the winner of uh, the, that, that civil war. And I think one reason um, that uh, the Batavians were pardoned uh, for their revolt and uh, were getting uh, permission to continue their old conditions uh, for participating in the Roman Empire was that they uh, took the side of Vespasian and, uh, mm-hmm. and, and, and choo- choose the right party. So uh, the different elements are playing a role when you want to explain the period of the Batavian uh, revolt and the causes for that. Uh, it's not simply uh, a native revolt, other factors mm-hmm. are involved too.
0: Yes, I think that's an important detail, it can be tempting to oversimplify these things, whether in the interest of nationalism or for any other agenda. Um, so as you mentioned, you know they were able to get good terms from Vespasian, you know, probably because they were on the winning side of the civil war. And, and so after the suppression of the revolt, um, the Netherlands returned to, in many ways, the situation they had been in before, where the army is governing local affairs, there's a large military presence. Um, and as you mentioned before, the military is really dictating a large part of local economy. Um, and so in this sense, um, thanks to the military being so ingrained in local society, Um, How integrated are the Roman Netherlands into the economy, the Roman economy as a whole, I would say, the economy of the Northwest in particular? Mm -hmm. And to focus on the towns, um, how can we compare or contrast the towns of the Roman Netherlands with those we see in, say, Northern Gaul or in Britain?
1: Yeah, to start with these towns. um, the the Lower Rhine region, the Dutch part of the Lower Rhine region, uh, that was part of the Roman Empire. Uh, the, there, the groups were organized according to the uh, the Roman civitas uh, uh, pattern. Mm-hmm. So there were civitates, the civitas of the Batavians, uh, the Canovates, um, and the um, uh, the vones, uh, in the coastal region. Uh, they had their capitals. And uh, we know two capitals quite well: uh, the, the capital of the Kalfats, Forum Hadriani, and uh, Nijmegen or Noviomagus, mm-hmm. the capital of the, uh, the Batavian Kivitas. Both were foundations um, uh, which were uh, well following the, the layout of a normal Roman town, Uh, A street grid, a forum and public buildings in the center, of course, not that rich, but it is quite, uh, well, normal for the general Mm -hmm. layout of uh, towns. Um, The countryside, because of course there is a close relationship between town and countryside, the countryside is rather poor. Um, the, the, the Dutch river area and these sandy soils directly to the south that, that are not rich agricultural lands. Uh, the emphasis was on, on cattle breeding. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, so when uh, there are not so much Roman villas, there are a few, but most uh, settlements have uh, the character of in so-called indigenous settlements with, with uh, these traditional buyer houses. Uh, So from that point of view, it's, uh, well, uh, we see that these towns are modest in terms of richness. Uh, Mm. And from another point of view, we have to realise that it are typical frontier towns, which means that um, the Roman army had a great influence uh, because they are situated along the, the Limes, and uh, the stationing of large groups of Roman soldiers also provided uh, the stimulus for urban development. Yeah. And, and that was also a factor that um, uh, well can explain the uh, relative wealth of these uh, urban um, settlements in the, in the Dutch river area. Um, yeah, that's more or less the essential um, essential elements of what we see in the especially the second uh, century AD. Um, okay. An increase of Romanization but um, the military element uh, is very strong and important uh, for uh, keeping up that uh, well economic development in the region.
0: Um, So, speaking of of the Limes, to what extent is the Roman frontier along the Rhine a uh, a cultural divide? Um, How extensive is Roman influence among the tribes beyond the Rhine, what's now the northern Netherlands?
1: Yeah, that's uh, an interesting question. Um, What we can say is that uh, directly north of the Limes, north of the Rhine um, and east of the Rhine, We find, well, only native style settlements, but a lot of areas were very uh, thinly populated. So um, we even have the idea that um, these areas north of the Limes were to to some extent uh, controlled by the Roman army. As, uh, as so-called Prata legionis where the Roman army mm-hmm. could, uh, well, um, uh, could, could um, graze, let graze their, their mm-hmm. cattle. Uh, and uh, so it, it was um, a region that was not occupied in a literary sense, but controlled uh, by Roman uh, military authorities. And the Limes was not, of course, completely closed, but movements of people were controlled. Uh, not everyone could go in. There are reports of frequent raids of Germanic groups. Uh, so that was always a um, um, risk for, for Roman uh, groups uh, in the Limes region. Um, and uh, but from the other on the other hand, we know that north of the uh, Limes, for example in the Frisian region, uh, at, at, in every settlement, we see uh, a lot of Roman imports pottery, glass objects, uh, military uh, equipment. So, exchange was intensive. Uh, but, um, well, it, I, th- I think the Roman military authorities tried to control the Limes Vorland, uh, as the Germans say, the, the mm-hmm. area of the first. Uh, 100 kilometers as well as possible Uh, but there was interaction Uh, but at the same time there was always the risk of uh, invading groups uh, crossing the limas we have several Mm -hmm. examples of that from the written record
0: Hmm. so moving forward again in time uh, to the fourth century Um, So at this point, under the Tetrarchy, um, Trier becomes uh, a tetrarchic capital. And the Netherlands move closer than ever before to the center of imperial power. Do we see any traces of this new proximity uh, to a capital in the archaeology of this period?
1: Yeah, that's that's also funny. You would expect that the uh, proximity of Trier Mm. uh, would have a positive influence. functioned as a boost for urban development mm-hmm. and so on in the Lower Rhine region. But um, this situation was uh, completely different. And that mm-hmm. uh, is related to, um, the, con- to the, 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 the point of the consequences of the um, uh, third century crisis in the, uh, in the Lower Rhine region. We know that uh, the area towards the end of the third uh, century was uh, almost completely depopulated. Um, Almost every rural settlement stops uh, in the later third century uh, AD. And um, there was not only uh, a complete depopulation of the countryside, but also um, a disruption of organizational structures. For example, the Kivitas uh, structure was destroyed, we, we, uh, the, the, the Kivitas capital of the Betevi, Noviomagus, uh, was no longer inhabited. And the same is true mm-hmm. for um, uh, the Kivitas of the Fates. Um, so in the Limes area, we see that forts were still functioning as military forts, but not in a, on a permanent intensive basis as before. Uh, so we have a, a completely different situation here, with a depopulated countryside. And uh, well, one of the the points of debate at this moment is what was the cause of this depopulation? Was it uh, the warfare going on in the um, in the third century crisis? Um, was it uh, the, the, were diseases playing a role? Um, I think it's a combination of factors and one of these factors may well have been um, deportation of groups Mm. by the Roman authorities from the Lower Rhine region and deportation to the south to uh, poorer inhabited areas in France. And um, uh, unfortunately, the, the written evidence is rather poor here. Uh, mm-hmm. for the uh, uh, late 3rd, early uh, 4th century. But there are certain indications that uh, these groups in the Lower Rhine area, these indigenous groups, Batavia and Calendaphatis, were punished for their support to posthumous uh, Gallic Empire. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, they were punished by deportation. And uh, it's uh, interesting to know that in, northern, in, in central France, several... Um, indigenous settlements have been found with, uh, well, these northern uh, type mm-hmm. houses. So uh, that's a very interesting topic that, uh, well, um, the Roman Empire had a direct impact in this depopulation because of the deportation of groups uh, as a kind of punishment. Uh, But um, yeah, a a dramatic situation, it must have been a bizarre experience when you are traveling these areas uh, empty. Uh, All these Mm -hmm. sites are uh, deserted.
0: Uh, Wow, yeah, that that is very dramatic as you say. Um, Was there any repopulation before the end of the empire in the fifth century?
1: Yeah, that's that's, uh, of course um, the next story. What mm-hmm. we know is that um, a repopulation or recolonization uh, occurred, and that many settlements were reused again. Because I can imagine that uh, new immigrants were uh, traveling the, the 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 landscape and saw where previous settlements uh, had been uh, had existed and where they. Uh, well, reclaimed uh, the land mm-hmm. uh, for uh, uh, well, reclaimed the land for the second time, but um, uh, that is um, uh, well a key issue that uh, these new groups were immigrants coming from the other side of the Rhine, and then we are here in the periods of around um, uh, 400 AD. Uh, in the Franks are coming in, and Frankish groups mm-hmm. are repopulating the area. And we have now in the in the Netherlands, in the southern Netherlands, uh, well, several of these indigenous settlements fr- uh, from around 400 AD excavated. They are um, of a northern type. They are uh, farmhouses uh, from northern Germany and and from the the other side of the Limes, and. It turns out that in this period, we are dealing with a completely open frontier uh, with an Mm -hmm. open Limes. The Limes did not function as it did before. Um, And that can best be demonstrated uh, by um, looking at the distribution map of gold Roman uh, solidi coins. Mm -hmm. That was the, uh, um, the, uh, the key coin for the late Roman Empire, the solidus. And um, when you see the distribution map, you see a a lot of hoarding of Roman solidi and isolated solidus finds in settlements, in rural context, on both sides of the Rhine, uh, on the north of the Rhine, uh, the northern bank, as well as inside the Rhine, in these depopulated areas which were recolonized. And that demonstrates a very important point that these newcomers, Uh, these uh, Frankish newcomers were having a special position in uh, the Roman uh, Empire because they were uh, used uh, for auxiliary uh, uh, service Uh, in the late Roman period. uh, Frankish groups were uh, well well known for their uh, military qualities and they were paid uh, with gold. So there is a huge Mm -hmm. gold flow in the late Roman Empire going to these Germanic, uh, these Frankish groups. And um, the fact that a lot of gold is found in these settlements and and, and was hoarded in these areas also shows that these groups were not taxed uh, as was quite Mm -hmm. normal in the Roman Empire because gold was uh, the, the standard payment. Uh, and from the government, it went to, uh, well, all kinds, all sectors of society, but taxation was in gold. So it, there was a kind of gold cycle. Uh, but that was not the case with these Frankish groups. They seem to have been treated in a, in a very special way uh, that they didn't have to pay taxes. So the gold went into one single direction only, and that explains that we find it uh, in so many settlements. Uh, and that also explains that, in, for example, also in the Merovingian period, the sixth and seventh century, we find so many gold elements, uh, <laughs> ornaments and so on. I can imagine that all this gold, Merovingian gold, is uh, gold from uh, made out of melted down uh, Roman okay. solidi, uh, paid huh. in the period uh, late fourth, early fifth century AD. So that this was the period of the uh, the collapse of the Roman Empire. And uh, the key period was um, the, the period around 400 uh, AD when uh, well, we also have written evidence that uh, uh, Roman generals try to, um, uh, to, to, to make contact with uh, Germanic groups and, and pay them uh, gold uh, as a reward. And, and that is a more general process uh, occurring along the Rhine frontier, but we see it very clearly in the lower Rhine region.
0: Oh, that's fascinating. We always think of the the fall of the roman empire is being this dramatic transition or at least a potentially dramatic one but it seems that here it's a very gradual and almost several stage process where it's first abandoned or rather it's de- depopulated by the romans themselves in the third yeah. century or replaced by these auxiliaries who then become the conquerors of the whole rhine region um, and then of course falls totally out of roman orbit um, and so to close with kind of a, a more general question, and so of, co- the, of course uh, the Netherlands, um, like Britain for that matter, is one of the relatively few chunks of the Western Empire that stopped speaking Latin. Um, you know, of course, Gaul re- retains uh, a Latinate language, as do uh, Spain and, and Italy, but the Netherlands began speaking Dutch or at least some Germanic language around this time. Is the thought that this complete replacement of the old population by these new tribes, these Franks and other Germanic tribes coming in? Does that account for the more dramatic linguistic transition we see here than we see, say, in Gaul?
1: Yeah, the language uh, issue is, of course, uh, also a very interesting one. Um, The language boundary uh, was going through uh, Belgium, uh, modern Belgium, Mm -hmm. uh, and and even certain parts of the extreme northwest of France uh, was uh, Dutch or Flemish speaking. Uh, mm-hmm. Until the uh, well, uh, the the uh, the 17th century. So there was a in the north a zone of um, um, well a zone of Germanic uh, language uh, uh, spoken there. But um, the reason for that distribution is, I think, simply um, the. Um, the region where these uh, Frankish settlers came in, that was for an important part, depopulated uh, rural land uh, and mm-hmm. uh, so when the new population comes in and it is depopulated, then you have qu- a quite uh, different situation than more into the interior of Gaul, where you see a continuation of the old Gallo-Roman population and a mm-hmm. continuation of the old Kivitas towns. Uh, They they were continued there and uh, that explained that the the Germanic languages were uh, not uh, having that chance uh, in the southern areas compared to these northern fringe area of the Netherlands Mm -hmm. and uh, and Belgium where the countryside created an almost 100% uh, Germanic speaking uh, population uh, in the... uh, in in the migration period. Uh, So I think that is the the main explanation.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, that's wonderful. Well, uh, Professor Roymans, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been a fascinating conversation. And to everyone who's listening, uh, thanks very much for tuning in.